welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, everybody. We're celebrating the Advent Art Series. Um, today, we're, we're talking about love. Uh, my name is Eric Springer. I live in St. Paul. I'm a writer. Um, live with my wife. I work as a computer programmer. Um, so today, love. Uh, when I found out I was going to talk about love, I was kind of intimidated because love is big. Love is the big one, right? Uh, so I thought about it, thought about it, and what came to my mind was change. Love changes you, right? So if you're married, love changed you. It did. Oh, yeah. I hear amen. Uh, love, Jesus was a spirit, and during this season, we celebrate that he became a man. He changed, right? Kind of like the genie in Aladdin is what I thought about. Ultimate cosmic power! Itty bitty living space. He became a little tiny baby. Uh, and Jesus' love changes us. So um, in that spirit, I'm changing. This weekend, I'm going to do something I've never done or dreamed of doing. I'm going to read a love poem in front of 100 strangers. This poem I wrote uh, can be a conversation between a man and his wife, and it can also be a conversation between created and creator. So um, with that, this poem's called My Great Pleasure. At the start, I was a man half-formed, my heart too shallow to hold you, my hands hard, two eyes too dim to see your sunrise. I was a lost boy. A reckless of the greenwood, a tyrant of the trees. I ran with wolves and bent to bed beside brambled bonfires, nails long, elbows sharp. But all my howling hornets fled like mayflies when you came waltzing on in. I loved you. Your words could turn a priest into a prisoner, a doctor into a poet, a shepherd into a king. In you there is laughter that lifts, snickers that satisfy, and feasts that defy all decency or convention. Let me love you. Let me hold your songbird hand in mine. Let me get tipsy off your wine-soaked lips, and let my eyes be dazzled by the rip-roaring, frightening lightning bolt that is you. I will leave wilderness by the wayside, and I will be the happiest of captives. I will heat the soup that makes you well. I will wash the clothes that keep you warm. I will work the hours, and I will consider it a worthy crusade. Let's treat Target like a playground. Let's eat pie for dinner and cake for breakfast. Let's let love make us fat. And treat every morning like the first morning after marriage, until my hands again are calloused from caresses, my lips worn thin from countless kisses, my roomy eyes ruined from visions of you. I will be bent low again, a savage smiling, saying, it was my great pleasure to have lived and loved you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Emily, and today my art is expressing the word love. I chose to do this through the medium of a hand-stitched art quilt because I feel like love is often best expressed and described through our actions. And like love, quilting is all about careful execution. Each piece of fabric is trimmed and chosen and placed carefully, and even the smallest details of thread color and individual stitch is applied with purpose and delight. And I think this is how we should at least try to love each other. So today, we invite you to consider the arrival of love. 
Just so you know, um, these pieces that are uh, for our viewing pleasure throughout Advent are available. If you are interested in purchasing some of them, um, please speak to the artist that created them or Ben, and they will point you in the right direction. Um, Genesis 37, I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them. We are rounding the corner on a series that we have been in. We have considered hope, joy, peace, and now love. And as Eric said, it's my task to say something interesting and memorable about love, which of course no one has ever done. Uh, it's a bit like this photo I, I took in Israel, like nobody's ever seen that, right? You know? The classic, I've been to Israel, I've been to Jerusalem, and there I stand with the Dome of the Rock over my shoulder. If you look at Google, there's like a billion people instead of me in that spot. Um, so the task is, what is there to say about love that hasn't already been said? Uh, so what I want to do this morning is just to kind of lay a, a roadmap for us. I want to back up just a hair uh, to last week. We talked about shalom, this word peace, and what that means. And I want to um, try to maybe uh, color in a few of the lines that I painted last week. There were a few things that I thought I could have said a little bit more clearly. I listened back, and I just, uh, there's, so I want to revisit that just for a brief moment. And then I want to look at uh, the scriptures and how love is used in the scriptures. And then a story from Genesis 37, where I think love is at play, and then a couple of thoughts as we close. So uh, let's jump in. Last week, we talked about shalom, this Hebrew word, and I uh, submitted the possibility that um, peace equals shalom, and shalom is really wh what it means to live in the garden. Uh, the Bible begins with a story in Genesis of God creating the heavens and the earth and this place that we call Eden, the garden of delight. And that Eden was less of a physical geographic location somewhere on the planet and more of an idea that there's universal flourishing wholeness and delight for all of that which God has made. And in doing so, then God invites humanity to work and guard, this word shamar, work and guard the garden. This is our role. This is the invitation God gives us. And if you know the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve choose to live outside of that. This job of guarding the garden is given to an angel. And then in chapter 4, it begins with Cain and Abel. And this grand question that Cain asks, which is, am I my brother's keeper? And the word that's used there is shamar. It's the same word. It's guard. And so Cain essentially asks, and he's absolutely in conversation with Genesis 3, right? Am I my brother's guard? Is it my responsibility to be the person who looks after my brother's or sister's wholeness, flourishing, and delight? And so I said last week, the answer is yes to that question. It's our job. It's our role. It's our invitation. This is what it means to be human, to be the one who guards, looks after our brother and sister's wholeness, flourishing, and delight. Now, having said that, I want to just say, I know and I recognize that this is not simple. This is not cut and dry. And I realized that after last week, it may have been interpreted that, you know, it's like, hey, go do it, all right? Get to it, right? Rock it. Um, but I know that, like, this week and even two days from now, many of you, many of us will be walking into situations that are anything less than um, easy, where you can just sort of apply a formula about look after your brothers and sisters and their wholeness, flourishing, and delight. I know that it's a lot more complicated than that. I know that even when we think about caring for the flourishing wholeness and delight of people in our community, that it's, there are often very challenging economic questions. That sometimes when Christians or people who are trying to help, help, 
it often actually hurts. And we enable sometimes, when, even when we're not trying to. So I recognize that this is not as easy as it sounds. And yet, this is at the center of what it means to follow this Jesus. And so I want to just challenge us to hold those two things in tension. Recognizing that this is not an easy conversation, but also recognizing how deep this thread goes in the story of God in the scriptures. That Jesus is sent by the Father into a world that hates him to seek the shalom, the flourishing wholeness and delight of his brothers and sisters, you and me, if Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul refers to him. So, want to just get that off my chest. I would also say that shalom does not require the death of self. It does not require you to sort of become obsolete. Shalom does not require you to disappear. Shalom does not require you to become a doormat where the world walks over you and you sort of lay yourself down in service to anybody and everything. That's not really what I was getting at, and I think that actually the opposite is maybe even true. If we think about shalom, it's universal flourishing wholeness and delight. And that includes you, and it includes me. And if, if we're to be about the caring for and the con, our concern ought to be the flourishing wholeness and delight of our brothers and sisters, then it has to begin with us. It has to happen in us. So wholeness and flourishing is happening in you. And so if there's an absence of peace or brokenness in you, that you're included in this. Shalom doesn't require you to sort of disappear, but it does require selfishness to die in you. And selfishness is where I see you as a means to my end. It's where I see you as a threat to my well-being. And how much of our economy and our world operates with this assumption, that you are not a gift to me, but you're a threat. Or I don't see the image of the, the God who made you in you. I see my reflection in you, and so I take whatever it is that I need from you and discard you when I'm done with you. Shalom requires selfishness to die in us, not you, not self, if that makes any sense. I think there's a, there's a fine line there, but I think it's one that ought to be thought of or said. And I would say, and this kind of launches us into today, shalom, this Hebrew word, and love that we find in the scriptures are absolutely in conversation with one another. These are dance partners. When you find one, you often will find the other. You cannot have peace if you have not been changed by love. So, what does the scripture say about love? Uh, let's go there. So in the, in the Bible, there, uh, there are, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. In, in the the Old Testament scriptures, the word for love is ahava, and it's often connected to another Hebrew word called chesed. Some of you may have heard this one before. This word chesed essentially means like loving covenantal obligation or covenant faithfulness. It's often translated loving kindness. And what we know about the scriptures and what we know about God who's talked about in the scriptures is that this word chesed is God's heart towards us. I think many times we come to church, we, we're a part of spiritual communities, and the, the, the sort of low-grade belief of what God's disposition towards us is, is like really hacked and really angry and sort of like the moment we step out of line, it's wango and, you know, God's ready to whack us. But actually the scriptures tell a different story, I would submit. 
And God's disposition towards us is not anger or wrath, but chesed, loving kindness. Because of Adam and Eve's choice in Genesis 3, I would submit nothing in the heart of God changes. What changes is in us, not God. So what happens at Christmas and what happens in Advent and Jesus' coming is not about the satisfaction of God's wrath and anger so much as it is about what's happening in us and how... And, and, and the ongoing display of what God's heart says about you and me. Chesed, ahava, love. If you grew up in the covenant, there was actually this long debate in covenant history with a guy named P.P. Waldenstrom. What a, na- what a great name, right? Any of you pregnant ladies out there want a name? There you go. P.P. Waldenstrom. He, he, he argues this idea that nothing changes in the heart of God, but rather what's happening at Advent and Christmas is really about what's in your hearts and my hearts. So, ahava, hesed. Now, in the scriptures, the first usage of a word is often very, very important. When a, when a word is used for the first time, it often will sort of set a trajectory or give the word a, a, a range of possibility that it could be connected to. It's sort of a river of thought that then sort of leads out from that first usage. And for a billion Torah points, when is the first usage of the word love in the Bible? Does anyone have any idea? I figured, I didn't give the first hour like even a chance on this one, so I figured I'd at least pause. Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, is the first first usage of the word love. It says this, God said, sometime later God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham's response is, here I am, he nanny, we've talked about this. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Ahava, Isaac. Now, there's actually a, a tradition in the scriptures in the in Jewish um, community called Midrash, where they sort of fill in the lines between the scriptures. And there's this great one that sort of teases out the conversation that happens in Genesis 22, where God says, Abraham, he says, here I am, take your son. And Abraham says, which one? I have two. And God says, your only son. And he says, well, actually, the Isaac and Ishmael are the only sons of their mother. So which one? And then God says, the one whom you love, Isaac. Take the one whom you love and sacrifice and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So the first usage of the word love in the scriptures is a father who sacrifices his son for something bigger. can probably fill in some of the blanks on that one. Where is this used in the scriptures? Where do we find it? Very important passages in the Old Testament and the New that use this word love. Deuteronomy 6, uh, you may remember the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind. This is, the, this is a very important passage in, in Hebrew, uh, in Judaism. And then in Leviticus 19, uh, The writer says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Later on in that chapter, he goes on, the writer goes on to say, the foreigner residing among you, you must be treated or must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt and I am the Lord your God. Think fast forward to the story of the Good Samaritan and what's his question to Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? The foreigner, the stranger, the other among you. 
the one who's outside of him. Then, of course, you have Jesus in the New Testament. When asked by the teachers of the law, who are trying to sort of, you know, pin him into a corner, they say, if you could boil it all down, the 613 laws in Torah, which one is the most important? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in John 15 and then John in 1 John give us a definition of what this word is. Jesus says, God, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And in 1 John, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So a little review here. We have God who is love. The essence of, of God is love. God creates this world. We're called to sort of care for the shalom of our brothers and sisters. We have the first usage of the word love of a father who sacrifices his son for something bigger. And we have God saying, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeats this. And this definition of love, if we're going to boil it down... Cue the foreigner tribute band, right? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I actually sang that last night at a wedding. Yeah, it was their wedding right there. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. So, this is how we know. This is how we know what love is, right? I mean, all kinds of people want to weigh in on this one. What is love? What's it look like? Scriptures say it looks like this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the other. So love, at its core, at its essence, at the center, is the sacrifice of me for you. Now, Genesis chapter 37. If you remember this story, this is uh, uh, the story of Joseph. Just to lay the groundwork, the characters in the story, Joseph is one of 14 and he has 13 other brothers. 12 of them become the tribes of Israel. One of them uh, is sort of not included in that. Joseph and Benjamin are blood brothers. They're both born to Rachel, who is the beloved of Jacob, the father. So it stands to reason, you wonder, like, why is jo Joseph so important? Well, he's the firstborn son of the woman that, jo that Jacob really loved, wanted first in the story. So this is in the, in the midst of the story. His brothers have decided to get rid of him because he's the rotten beloved son. You know, they're all jealous. And so in chapter 37, verse 25, this is what they decide to do with him. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, one of the brothers says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so his brothers agreed. So just stop and think about this for a moment, if you will, right? Judah, one of the brothers, they're, they're about to throw Joseph in a well. They've, they, I think they actually do. They throw him in a well and then they sit down for lunch, because this is what you do when you throw your brother in a dried up well. You know, like, I'm kind of hungry after that, you know. Does anybody bring some hummus or something? How about, okay. So they sit down for snacks, and then Judah's like, hey, I mean, let's think about this, gang. If we throw our brother in this well and he dies there, I mean, it's nothing but trouble for us, right? We've got to come up with a story. Uh, we we got to tell our father who's going to just, you know what he's going to say about Joseph, you know, the, the dreamer, the beloved son. Uh, it's, just not, it's just nothing but trouble for us. But what if we take him out and we sell him to those people who are wandering by? At least then we've got some more money for snacks. 
right? I mean, this is like the lowest of the low. This is lower than let's kill our brother. That's like, no, let's sell him so we can eat. And I mean, the story is just, it's brilliant. It's so beautifully told because think about who the Ishmaelites are, right? Back up the truck. Remember, all the way back in the story, Abraham is told by God he's going to have a son, and then through him, da-da-da-da-da-da. And they laugh because they're like, dude, we're old. I mean, have you seen us? We're like old. <laughs> so it's not working out. It's not panning out. And, and so they say, how about take Hagar, sleep with her, and then Ishmael is born. This son is sort of exiled because it's sort of like an affront on the promise that God gives, a lack of trust. Exiled becomes the father of the Arab nation. And this is the group of people who's wandering by that they sell Joseph, the seed of the promised future, to. You can't make it up. You just can't make it up. Not to mention, not to mention Judah. This guy's name, if you look at it in Hebrew and you take the D out of his name, do you know what emerges? Yahweh. <laughs> it's like the name of God. So the guy in the story whose name is like almost God is acting the farthest possible distance from who and what we know about Yahweh. He sells his own brother for money. He's the one who architects the deal. I mean, this is, this is, this is bad. This is, this is as far as you could get from Eden, Right? If to be human is to guard our brother and sister's shalom, if, if that's what it means, that's what we're invited to do, this is as far as you could possibly get from it. Now, skip to chapter 44. And I'm going to read this actually from a different translation because it gets a little confusing about who's the Lord and who's the servant and who's what and where. So this is, this is Judah. We're fast-forwarded. Joseph has been taken to Egypt... And he's standing, Judah and his brothers are standing before Joseph, and this is Judah speaking. He says, now, my Lord, he's speaking to Joseph, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. He's talking about Benjamin, the, the now beloved son, the only true-born son of Rachel left. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave interesting way to talk about your father, but that's a whole nother deal. My Lord, I guaranteed my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. Now get this. Here's what happens. So please, my Lord, let me stay as your slave instead of the boy. Take me, not my brother. Just pause for a moment and think about what's happened here. Judah, chapter 33. Sells, architects the deal to sell his own brother into slavery, and 11 chapters later says, take me, not my brother. What does shalom mean? What is Joseph sent to do? He's sent to seek to the shalom of his brothers and their flocks in Genesis like 27 or 9 or something. And now we have Judah. The question, what causes a person to do this? Think about the person in your life that you know who is the lowest, slimiest, backstabbing, conniving, fill in the blank. You got him? Everybody got him? This is kind of a fun exercise, right? Like, oh yeah. Now imagine that they start to resemble Yahweh, the God who made them. What on earth makes that kind of a journey possible? Arguably, 
the only thing is love. Eric said it, love changes people. I'm filling in the blanks here between 33 and 44. I'm doing my own little midrash, but I think Judah, somewhere along the way, came in contact with Ahava. And it changed him. Two ideas as we kind of close. What does this love look like? Like when it shows up, what can we expect to see when it's in play? What kinds of things will happen? I would say first, love calls things forth. Love actually brings things out from the shadows. Uh, whatever you believe or think about Peter Rollins, uh, he writes this, and I think he's onto something. He says, Love is so humble that it seems impossible to ever really catch anything but the briefest glimpse of her. She is like a tiny field mice dwelling in the dark. Should we hear her scratching in the corner and shine a light, she will, quick as a flash, scurry away so that we catch only the sight of the tip of her tail. Indeed, love is so bashful that we often forget about her entirely. This is what love does. It does not make itself visible, but rather makes others visible to us. Love does not exist, but calls others into existence. For it to exist means to stand forth from the background, to be brought into the foreground. Love does not stand forth, but brings others forth. When we love, our beloved is brought out of the vast, undulating sea of others, just as the Torah speaks of God, calling forth beings from the formless void of being. So love calls our beloved out of the endless ocean of undifferentiated objects. What does love do? It calls you forth. It brings things into existence. It's, it's, it's a bit like light, right? We can't really quantify see light, but we know light by its effect. It illuminates the things that we love. Uh, uh, he says love doesn't exist. Like You can't love love, right? It's not something that you can measure and quantify, but only experience the effect of it. Love calls things forth. I would say love expands the world. When love is at play, when love is in action, love creates, it generates, it energizes, it, it sort of builds or makes beauty, wonder, hope, joy. This is why Paul can say, above everything else, it's love. Above anything, above everything. If you don't have love, you have nothing. This is pay it forward. Does anybody remember that movie? Haley Joel Osment, Kevin Spacey, right? It's a good movie because it's like, connected to what it means to be human and truth and who God is. That love generates things. It expands the world. It doesn't shrink it. When love is at work or you're experiencing love or you and I are reflecting love into the world, it creates, it produces, it generates, it always renews, it always restores, it always rebuilds. There's always more when love comes to town. <clears throat> Holding back, singing B.B. King and you too when love comes to town. Still holding it back. <laughs> I mean, okay, th think about Cain and Abel, right? This quintessential story about two human beings in the story. And what happens? Love is not present, and life ends. It's snuffed out. It is, it is consumed. But when love is present, it's not a zero-sum game. It expands the world that we live in. Now, let's test this hypothesis just for a moment, if you will. Uh, so what I'm saying is essentially, um, love expands the world. 
And if God is love, then what God makes should expand the world, right? It's just simple logic. You remember this from philosophy class, okay? So if love expands the world and God is love, then what God makes should expand the world. Genesis chapter 1, 11 says this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. I have still got some to go, Stephen. Can you bring up the lights here? I'm, you, you were on the queue and I'm, I'm just getting going here, buddy. <laughs> Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The land which God made produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit according to their kind. And it was, uh, and God saw that it was good. So what God the creator calls good or tov is this, here's, a, here's sort of a shrunken down version of this that I've stolen from a friend of mine. It's the actualization of potential life that is embedded in creation when creation itself brings it forth with the seeds of new life in it. Just take a second and read that. It's the actualization of the potential that God created the world with, right? So God made the world. There's trees out there. Those trees have the potential by their seed, their fruit that is in them to create more life. What God calls good is when creation itself, you and I, we become the stewards of, the workers and the garters of that which God made, and we bring forth new life with the seeds of new life in it. We're all actually born with the seeds of life in us, are we not? Love expands the world. I found this in a column written by somebody uh, from the Pioneer Press. This is a single mom of three. She writes this. My church was hosting its first annual chili cook-off, a fundraiser. Chili cook-off is on! The director of the youth ministry reminded parents in all caps alert, RSVPs needed, important. You know those emails where you're like, stop shouting at me, please. He sounded desperate for cooks. Reluctantly, I stepped up. I don't know how to make chili. I replied, do you need more entries? I could cook up a recipe. He says, so far, you're the only one. <laughs> it's not too difficult to make chili. I think I have never made it either. So we have the blind leading the blind here. Grimly, I began searching online for recipes. My goal wasn't to win the contest. My goal was just not to give anyone food poisoning. Cooking is not one of my natural talents, and if I were to ever win the lottery, I would use some of the money to enroll in a cooking school. As the head of my household, I imagine that being a professional chef would be much more useful than being a professional writer. All you writers in the room might want to consider that, but um, just kidding. Uh, or maybe I would just make or take, uh, just order takeout in every night. So the cook-off, uh, part of the church's holiday boutique and bake sale, came in at a financially tight time for me. I looked up chili recipes with keywords like limited ingredients or frugal. I found one eventually and settled on the Campbell's seven ingredient chili. Has anyone had this yet? Maybe you should try it. <clears throat> the day before my frugal grocery shopping trip, the kids and I attended a family fun night at their school. Unbeknownst to me, there was a meat raffle. We ended up winning two pounds of smoked cooked turkey from Kowalski's. I thought about how that meat was the most expensive item on my shopping list. And then I thought about Luke 6. Given it shall be given unto you. The day of the cook-off, I woke before my children, started chopping vegetables and throwing everything into the slow cooker. Since I'm a home cook with low self-esteem, I had carefully read online the comments and added some things that were suggested. A few hours later, I meekly dropped off my offering. 
now bubbling away, and I noticed there were, thankfully, other entries in the chili cook-off. Then I forged ahead with my day. After a busy morning, library, open house, pet store, I returned to pick up the leftovers and was greeted with surprising news. You got third place, the youth pastor said. Oh, Lord, the fine print here is I tied for third place. There were only seven entries, and judges were kids. Still, the good news warmed my heart like a bowl of chili. The entries were sold for a dollar a bowl. Mine was more than half gone by the time the cook-off and holiday boutique were winding down. Back home, I served the chili leftovers to my daughter and her friend, along with cornbread. They ate, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate. How long have we been eating, my daughter finally asked. About 45 minutes, her friend said. The best part of the day, days later, there have been no reports of food poisoning. It's a chili miracle. Do you have any idea where that meat came from? Right here. Somebody in this community donated meat to a school up the street where there's lots of kids whose flourishing wholeness and delight has not worked out as well as it should have for them. And they raffled that meat and this woman, this mother of three, got it. And so she made chili. And guess what happens when love is present? It grows. It expands. It changes the world that we live in. Because some random, insignificant, small group of people on the planet who happened to meet in a bar in Lilydale decided to say that the flourishing wholeness and delight of somebody other than themselves was actually part of what it means to follow this Jesus. And so I say to you this morning, Advent, Christmas, the coming of this Jesus is about a God who loves whose heart is as big as the day is long for you and 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 you. And that because of our wandering hearts, someone came to sort of put flesh and blood on this ineffable thing that we call love. And his name is Jesus. And he says, follow me. And so I invite you this morning to consider the arrival of love. To let love call forth things in you and through you in the world. To allow the world to expand because of, to allow your world and the world that you live in to expand because of love's arrival. Today I invite you to consider the arrival of love. God, as we wonder and think and pray and open your word about this idea called love. So many times uh, it's defined by people who have no business defining it. Sometimes that's the church. Sometimes it's others. But God, I pray that you would keep us coming back to the story that says that you are love and that you have made us from love and for love love, and that we would be found 
as individuals and as a community of people who follow this Jesus who says this is what it looks like. That we would be found faithful, growing in our capacity to receive the love that you pour so generously out. And we would be found faithful, reflecting that love into a world that is desperately wondering, needing love. God, may that be true for us and of us, we pray. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.